What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It's the weekend, and this is your DSR Daily Bonus Brief. I'm Grant Haver. And I'm Chris Cotnor. Today, we're joined by Joe Serencioni, a national security expert with over 35 years of experience working on these issues in Washington. Joe, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The Nuclear Posture Review was just released yesterday. What is it, and why does it matter? This review is mandated by Congress. Bill Clinton was the first one to to issue one. It usually is done at the beginning of administration, and it's supposed to be the overall strategy that guides the deployment and employment of the nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal. Biden has done his job here. He has issued a review. It is a big disappointment. I would consider this a Trump light review. That is, it continues all the programs and weapons that uh, President Trump embraced during his four years, makes a little few changes at the margins, cuts a few minor programs, but basically continues us on a path to spend about a trillion dollars per decade for the next at least three decades in completely recapitalizing our system of bombers, uh, submarines, and missiles, and the nuclear warhead complex without really much of a rationale for why we need this number of weapons in today's world. For me, one of the things that jumped out was this statement around reestablishing, repairing, and monetizing or modernizing our production infrastructure. You just mentioned $1 trillion per decade, but like, what, what does that look like? Is, is our nuclear infrastructure at risk? Does it work? What needs to be modernized? Every infrastructure needs modernizations. I mean, things wear out. So we could be making and and are making sensible investments in command and control of nuclear weapons, for example. A lot of those systems are kind of outdated. But what it really means, where the real money is, is that we are recapitalizing, we're replacing every single weapon in the arsenal with a newer version. So we're building a whole new fleet of ballistic missile submarines. We're building a whole new ground-based long-range missile systems, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, which many experts, including me, consider dangerous and obsolete and completely unnecessary. We're building new bombers. We're building new bomber weapons. We're building new cruise missiles. Everything. Everything is being replaced. So we're actually at this sort of tipping point where you could make a decision that the weapons we inherited from the Cold War, we don't need that many of them anymore. We could safely let go of some of them. For example, I agree with former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry. The ICBM is obsolete. It's dangerous. We don't need it. Let it go. We'd save $300 billion right there if we just didn't build that. And you could still make, make the case that, yes, we have to build some of these, but not all of these. There's no attempt in the nuclear posture review to actually do that. It generally talks on very top-level language about deterrence and values and safety and without actually getting into this. And and the reason for that is pretty simple. If I could just cut to the chase here. People think that this strategy is being developed by, you know, wise people 
in careful consideration of what we need and what the external threat is. That's not the way it works at all. This is driven from the ground up. When the president comes in, he's inheriting a vast nuclear weapons complex, tens of thousands of people, about $70 billion of contracts every year, and the associated companies and lobbyists with that. And that's what drives the process. They want to all keep their jobs, keep their programs, keep their profits. So this nuclear posture review is really a mountain of contracts wrapped in a little tissue of strategy to justify all these weapons that exist. Joe Biden could have taken on that complex. I know he doesn't think we need all these weapons. I know he, need, he thinks we need to change policy, but he made a political calculation not to do that. How would one even go about doing that? Like with such an entrenched group of people who benefit so greatly from the current system and the fact that disarmament or reducing the stockpile will always be seen as weakness. How do you actually combat the core problem here? Well, first of all, you take the review away from the people who have the most interest in not changing anything. The way this works is the Pentagon writes its own review. There's involvement of other agencies, but the Pentagon controls the pen. It's like you writing your annual assessment of your job, then accepting that assessment and giving yourself a raise. I mean, that's what goes on here. So what you'd have to do is end this process. And I I just wrote an article for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists saying that Bill Clinton was the first to do this. Joe Biden should be the last. This is an outdated, unnecessary, ineffective, and even dangerous way to do a review. It should come from the White House. The executive should be telling the department what to do, not the other way around. Isn't it just a review? Can it be rejected or it's just accepted as law and, you know, it feeds into the budget process? Like, how does, the, how does all that work? This is a review that's, you know, like, as I say, drafted by the interagency process led by the Pentagon, then signed off by the president. So the president accepts it. So he agrees with this. So his signature is on it. So this is his review now. It itself is not a budget document. Those go separately. But it's what's presented as the overall rationale and the overall guidance. There is a process now where what's in the review will be translated into what's called employment guidance, which then goes down to the the commanders to dictate how they will actually operate. And if there's any changes, they will implement those changes. There aren't many changes here. Biden could still, after the election, next year in his budget, the year after that, decide that, you know, we really don't need to go full speed ahead on the ICBM. Or you know what? What I said on the campaign trail about no first use, about there's no need for the U.S. to ever use a nuclear weapon first, you know what? I think I will make that presidential guidance after all, even though the Pentagon opposed it. So he could still make the changes. It's just that he's missed his best chance to do that with this formal review. One thing that struck me while I was reading the document was how we describe the value of our nuclear weapons. And it just struck me as difficult for us to say these are valuable, they're unique, they keep us safe, and then turn and say like, Iran, don't get them, don't try to get them, they're not that valuable to you, when we ourselves are holding on and modernizing and expanding what we already have. Bingo. You have hit on the central contradiction here. Mohammed al-Baradei, the former head of the IAEA, used to say, 
how do you expect other people to give these up when the big boys want to keep all their toys? And that's what you've got here. We keep elevating nuclear weapons. We keep putting them on an altar. They're the foundation of our national security strategy. They're essential to U.S. roles. They're, you know, we laud them. We imbue them with magical powers, right? And so other countries are looking at this and saying, well, I think I might need some of those. Maybe I need some of those against you. And then we back it up by spending a trillion dollars a decade on new ones. Again, saying this is how valuable they are to us. We're not going to put that to climate change or pandemics or income inequity problems. No, we're going to put it towards nuclear weapons. Well, why wouldn't other countries think that we need to do it? So I do agree with you. When we talk about nuclear weapons this way, it increases the drivers of proliferation, increases the, the motivation of other countries to get them. So let's pivot from what this says about our domestic policy towards nukes towards what it says about the world and where we're sitting in it in terms of nuclear weapons. One thing it mentioned was that our principal competitors continue to expand and diversify their nuclear capabilities to include novel and destabilizing systems, as well as non-nuclear capabilities that could be used to conduct strategic attacks. Who are they talking about and what are they talking about? They're talking about uh, Russia and China, our only real competitors. And one of the things in this strategic review and, and the national defense strategy that accompanied it is the argument is being made that China, by the end of this decade, might have a thousand nuclear weapons and might become a true peer nuclear competitor. They have about 350 now, just to get this in perspective. Russia has slightly over 6,000 nuclear weapons. We have slightly under 6,000 nuclear weapons. It's uh, 5,484 to be precise, <laughs> but uh, give or take. And China has about 350. So you can see US and Russia have the majority of nuclear weapons in the world. They dwarf China. But in all these countries, in fact, every, all the nine nuclear armed countries are building new weapons, new capabilities, and they're sort of following the US and Russia and China lead. These countries are doing it. And when you build new weapons that replace 30-year-old systems, they're more capable. Joe, they're I will, you said nine. The document says there are only five nuclear countries. Who oh, are well, the nine are, that you are suggesting? Well, there are five recognized by the non-proliferation treaty. So these are officially recognized as nuclear weapon states, and that's the US, Russia, United Kingdom, France, and China. But then you add in Israel, India, Pakistan, and now North Korea, and there's nine. And that number's held very steady since the beginning of this century. In fact, North Korea is the only new nuclear weapon country in decades. So we you know we've been pretty good at stopping the spread of these weapons because of smart policies. It's not an accident. We've, we've kept the number fairly low, but we're at this sort of tipping point. Which way are we going to go? And there's two factors here. And one is arms control is dead. The last arms control treaty was in 2010. There hasn't been an arms control treaty since. There were very few prospects for getting a new treaty, even if Russia did want to negotiate with us. I don't think we have a Senate that would approve it. So we're at this point where all the big reductions over the last 30 years, <clears throat> we went from a total of about 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world down to just about 12,000 now. That's a big cut, but it's flattened out. There's no further reductions, and we're starting to tip up. It's not just 
the kinds of nuclear weapons, it's the number of nuclear weapons. So the, it talks about China building more weapons, and this is true. This is happening. So they might go from 300 to 400, maybe even 1,000, worst case scenario, 1,000. We're also, in the document, it also reserves the right for the U.S. to increase its numbers. So we may need to respond. Okay. And then get back to your question. And so that other countries are looking at that and going, well, wait a minute, if there's an arms race going on, are we just going to sit on the sideline? This is a real problem with not our adversaries, but with our allies, South Korea, Japan. There's even, you know, some rumbles in Germany. Really? Is that the world you want? Well, there's more countries getting these weapons? Okay, back to your core question. It's not just the nuclear weapons, it's these other capabilities. Often mentioned are hypervelocity systems, which are things that travel more than five times the speed of sound. Well, every ICBM, every long-range missile travels more than five times the speed of sound. It, it comes back in at like Mach 10 or Mach 15. But what we're talking about is cruise missiles that can travel that fast, which then get very difficult to detect, very difficult to shoot down. So it's a new capability. You have cyber warfare. You know, people are developing systems that can blind the other side, that can knock out their command and control system, that could bring signals into their command and control system to think they're being attacked when they're not. This is serious. This isn't made up. This isn't an article in Wired magazine. This is, you know, serious studies are warning about this. So you've got that to worry about. And plus, we're getting more and more capable, precision-guided long-range systems that can do the job that used to be reserved for nuclear. Our systems weren't that accurate, so the, a conventional warhead wouldn't kill the target, so you needed a nuclear warhead to do it. You really don't need that for many, many missions now, which is why people say there's really no military utility to a nuclear weapon. You can do it in conventional. So it's that cluster of issues and more that alarm people. These are real. This is a real developing complex threat environment. I just don't think nuclear weapons play a very big role in that, certainly not at the numbers of nuclear weapons that we have. What's the likelihood in your estimation that Putin would actually use nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons or otherwise? And, and, and then if he did, what would the response be? The probability is low, but it's not zero. And that's the worry. And the consequences are enormous. So when you plug this into a standard risk assessment formula, it's a low probability, high consequence event. So you've got to worry about it. And whether you think it's a 1% chance or a 20% chance, you have to do the same thing. Prepare your responses for what happens if he goes and do everything you can to deter him from crossing that line. And that's what the administration is doing. And in preparing your responses, you can see that, that Jake Sullivan talked about catastrophic consequences, but he doesn't talk about nuclear consequences. The line is strategic ambiguity, so you don't say it's in or you don't say it's out. But what most people emphasize, and I know the administration is thinking along these lines because that's what previous administrations have thought of, is that we have numerous other options that can punish anyone who uses a nuclear weapon without us responding in kind economic sanctions. If he goes, he hasn't seen anything yet. What would the complete economic isolation of Russia look like? Well, they couldn't buy or sell anything. Cut off from the banking system. You try to withdraw money in Moscow, nothing comes out. Diplomatic isolation. 
Even China and India would flee from a country that had used the first nuclear weapon in combat in 77 years. Cyber capabilities. And then, raising up the escalatory risks, conventional capabilities. We've been spending decades developing extremely capable conventional systems. You've heard a lot of military analysts talking about this over the last month or so on on cable news. If we wanted to, U.S. and NATO could destroy the Russian army in Ukraine in about a week. You know, or as Petraeus says, we could blow up the Black Sea fleet. We could do that. And that's short of nuclear. And so those are the kinds of non-nuclear responses. That's why the president of France, Macron, says even if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, we won't respond. I think Joe Biden will be well served by making that same claim. You don't want to justify or validate the use of nuclear weapons that, that Putin uses by then using one yourself. And so those, that's just this. And I got to say, I think the Biden administration is doing a very good job of this. They deserve more credit than they're getting. They have strongly backed Ukraine, but haven't done much of anything that escalates the crisis. So Putin threatens. Biden does not threaten back. There's no Trumpian fire and fury. My button is bigger than yours. You know, it's all very calm. We're not threatening him personally. This isn't a regime change operation. We're not committing U.S. troops. So, so Biden is trying to back Ukraine and do escalation control so we don't get to this point where Putin feels that he has to use a nuclear weapon or else. So our last question comes from one of our members. He asks, does any military, including Russia's, have a serious doctrine for deployment of tactical nukes? Aren't even the lowest yield weapons essentially strategic? Good point. This talk about tactical nuclear weapons is kind of fuzzy because a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. What makes it tactical is that we might use it on a battlefield rather than on an ICBM. So instead of spanning an ocean, we're overflying a hill. And that's what makes it tactical. The yield of that tactical weapon could be just as big as a strategic weapon. In fact, the kind of tactical warhead that the US and Russia deploy are what we call dial a yield. So the, the, the warhead that they could put on their Iskander missile, for example, goes from 10 kilotons, a little less than the Hiroshima bomb, up to 110 kilotons. So many times the size of the Hiroshima bomb, which weighed in at uh, 15 kilotons, that's 15,000 tons of TNT. This is a very large nuclear explosion, even at 15 tons. It's an enormous nuclear explosion at 150 tons. And once you use that, I mean, what happens next in the escalation? It could go all, all the way up. That's, that, that's true. Even the very smallest yield, the smallest yield we have in our arsenal is 0.3, 0.3 kilotons. So that's 300 tons. That's the warhead that we can put on the, uh, the B-61 bomb, which we have deployed in Europe and are now modernizing. There's recently been news. We're putting a new version of that into Europe soon. That's the equivalent of the blast that destroyed the Beirut airport, 300 tons of explosive force from that ammonium nitrate warehouse explosion. That's the, that is a very large explosion. The largest conventional bomb we have is the MOAB, the mother of all bombs, the mass ordnance air burst bomb. That comes in at 10 tons. So 10 tons is our largest conventional bomb. Beirut is 300. That is the smallest nuclear bomb. It's still an enormous weapon. Do we have a doctrine about using those? Yes, we do. And it's very similar to the Russian doctrine. 
So when, when you hear about Putin's doctrine and you condemn it, we do this too. They have an explicit doctrine. We call it escalate to de-escalate. It's, some people say it's more accurate to be escalate to win, where if they're in a conventional war and they're losing, they would use a nuclear weapon to turn the tide of battle. And they describe various ways they would use this from a demonstration shot to indicate their seriousness all the way to a military target or a target on the city. Similarly, the U.S. reserves the right to use a nuclear weapon first. And as Putin points out, we're the only country that's ever done it first. Biden campaigned against this on the campaign trail. He said it was crazy. And then he's been against it for 20 years. He just didn't take the chance to implement it here. Why? He wasn't willing to do the, the political fight that it would require. And this maybe is where we might want to end. Why didn't Biden change it? Why didn't he do what he said he was going to do, reduce the role and number of nuclear weapons in national security strategy, adopt a no first use or a sole purpose? The reason is it would have been a big fight. The bureaucracy is entrenched. He was against it. He would have been slammed by the conservatives. He certainly doesn't want anything that's going to make him or the Democrats look weak before a critical election. And he probably couldn't sustain it in Congress. His own Democrats are in favor of bigger nuclear budgets. The House Armed Services Committee, as the chairman Adam Smith says, want to spend as much money as is humanly possible on nuclear weapons. And the Senate Armed Services Committee is even worse. So he made a political calculation that it wasn't worth the fight. I, I, I can't fault him for that calculation, but I am uh, sad and a little depressed about the outcome. We're basically status quo a Trump-like nuclear strategy going on for the indefinite future. That's all the time we have for you today. If you have a tip, topic, or correction you'd like to flag for us, please email us at podcasts at the dsrnetwork.com. Every week before these bonus briefs, we ask you about the questions you have in our member Slack channel, so join us there to be a part of that discussion. Thanks to your membership for making conversations like this possible. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you on Monday.